Thank you very much, choir. It's really good to have you guys back. We missed you guys during the summer. And thank you to Chris for uh, replacing in the meantime. And thank you to the High C Praise team as well. For You guys are getting good. Okay, uh, let us read today's scripture passage. It's taken from Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 13 to 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. This is the word of the Lord. So, this passage, uh, the author is addressing the hostility between two groups. There are the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. So, the Jews, they were people of the promise, right? God had made a promise with their ancestor, Abraham, that through you, I will bless you, make a great nation, and that everyone will be blessed through you. So, they had this uh, promise, and that promise became enshrined in the covenant that they made uh, in the wilderness uh, through Moses, right? And the symbol of that covenant was the law. So the law was foundational to their Jewish identity as a people. And, uh, but you know what? Their existence, it was always kind of precarious. They had this great identity and promise, but uh, what was their history like? It was filled with conquest, domination, exile, and being run by foreign powers. Destiny was never in their own hands. And even now, in the context of this letter, they're under the the thumb of the great Roman Empire. They're a tiny minority people, minority faith and religion, in the sea of a great, mighty power. But they had the law, right? They had the law. It symbolized God's promise to them. And so, to these followers now, Jesus was the fulfillment of this law. It was a continuation. And so the law was the access point and the entry point. But what do we have here now? We have these Gentiles, these non-Jews, these people who are Greek-speaking, part of this this Roman Empire, trying to come into our faith and our community. What? Are Are they just trying to come to the back door now? What? They don't want to follow our long-cherished law that has been the cornerstone of our identity? So these people who had lived apart from the law and the promise, trying to access. So the Jews resented these newcomers and said, okay, you want to be part of us? You want to follow Jesus too? Well, you have to follow our law and the requirements that it has. In other words, you have to be like us. But still, was it true um, community? So the Gentiles who are drawn by the message of Jesus, they're coming in and trying to be part of this community, but they're, they're sensing some restrictions and exclusion. And so there's resentment being built, right? So the law, which was initially a beautiful symbol of God's covenant with his people, actually became a wall between the two groups that fostered hostility between them, right? In our own lives, we have our own laws, right? We have our own requirements for accepting others into our groups, don't we? You know, to be accepted into my group, you have to have the right personality, or you have to have the right background, 
Maybe you have to understand our jokes, right? You have to mesh well with me and us. So there are many requirements for uh, acceptance. So these requirements are our current day law that we put and there are walls. If you don't meet these requirements, you can't be a part of me. Right? We see these walls everywhere in the world today. Many Canadians who have been here for generations feel that newcomers need to pass a Canadian values test in order to be accepted here. To be a good American, you have to stand up for your national anthem, otherwise you should be fired. Right? Doesn't matter what the reason. So these are all the laws and requirements that we have to be part of the group. And we will learn today about some of these walls that are being built up in a place like Japan. So, you know, I was reflecting. These walls are often put up by a dominant group that feels kind of under threat. You know, like, I feel like our way of life or what we're used to is being shaken from underneath us. And so what? We want to gain a, regain a sense of control. And so to do that, we put up strict requirements. If you want to join us or become part of us, follow these things. In, in, in other words, you got to really be like us, be us. But does this method work? I mean, sure. If, uh, if what the dominant group offers is beneficial, you know, we might want to work hard to meet those requirements. I know there's you know, some of us in this congregation growing up, we may not have felt a warm welcome from society, uh, just a warm embrace, but we felt that the rewards of being part of this society, this group, was worth it, so we put our heads down, worked really hard, right? To get career, money, job, family. Those are the requirements. And so, for those who made it, now we feel part of the in-group. But what about those who are not able to meet the requirements? What if who they are is very different from what we ask? They will feel excluded and rejected. Right? And it's exclusion and rejection that breeds resentment and hostility. You know the best recruiting grounds for extremist militants or extremist groups are those who felt rejected and excluded from the society around them. They tap into this sense of exclusion and rejection by providing a sense of identity and purpose towards extremist ends. So ultimately, these laws, they all start from a good place and are meant to protect us but these walls breed hostility and resentment. But the message is that Christ breaks down the dividing walls. And how does he do that? So, verse 15. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity. He abolishes the law. The law was this cornerstone of Jewish identity, but it became that dividing wall that bred hostility. So for the sake of making the two divided groups into one, Christ abolished it and all, that, all its requirements. God's promise was now extended to anyone and everyone, regardless of their background. So for us, what requirements do we place on others to accept them? Christ has come to abolish these requirements for entry. Do we filter out people by their money, status, looks, popularity, Racial background, behavior, whatever might divide one group from others, Christ has abolished so that we can be one. But you know what? Removing these barriers alone, that's not enough. Change can't be forced from the outside. 
And when the United States government back in the 60s abolished segregation with new laws, these new laws, they didn't remove hostility. You know, black students who started to attend all previously all-white schools, they faced a lot of resentment, anger, hatred. You know, the only way for two groups to really become one is to have that hostility removed. We can experience outward peace, like no fighting or conflict, but without that removal of inner hostility, true reconciliation has not occurred. I mean, how do we do this? I mean, I don't have all the time to give a full exposition today, but uh, I can share a few insights. So the, the, the scripture says that uh, Christ might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So hostility is removed by being reconciled to God through the cross. Now we see this cross figure every week, right? But I feel like we've really lost the meaning of it in today's day and age. In the, the time of Jesus, the cross was the place of ultimate shame. It was a reminder of your utter powerlessness. If you're going to resist this great power of Rome, then this is the outcome. Utter powerlessness. It was a place to avoid at all costs. Yet this cross is the path that Jesus took. Jesus became powerless and took on shame. It was the ultimate symbol of Jesus denying himself and his own needs and accepting defeat rather than being victorious with power. And so he died on the cross. But here's the secret of our faith, right? Through Jesus' own weakness and self-denial, God showed his power. God used the cross to actually create new life through the resurrection. And what the, what the world saw as defeat and powerlessness, God showed his ultimate power with a new reality for a new community. So taking on this path of the cross that leads to the death of ourselves, but new life in Christ. Yeah, that sounds good. But what does it entail? It entails actually we need to then be aware of our, ourselves first, doesn't it? We can't deny ourselves if we don't know ourselves. I really believe that the source of so much hostility in this world is our own fear and insecurity and our need to compensate for these fears and insecurities by exerting power and control. You know, we've all had our experiences in life, I think, that have led to us having fears and insecurities. We may have been hurt, felt betrayed, suffered, experienced hardships, loss of control. I mean, all these things have shaped us and affected us in ways that we're not aware of. You know, and so our fears have led us to seek control in our lives. And by doing that, we build up our own requirements in order to feel safe. But here's what it is. If we allow our fears and insecurities to drive us, we can never experience true reconciliation because I'm always going to want things my way instead of laying down my own wants, needs, and trying to understand and listen to what the other wants and where they're coming from. That's the only way reconciliation can happen, right? If we do that with each other. But this will only happen when we lay our fears, our insecurities, and our darkness to God on the cross. We have to ask God to reveal what's in our hearts, to reveal the dark corners of hidden things that are lurking. And then we have to ask God for the courage 
to lay, place these on the cross. Because only when we can place them and die to ourselves on that cross is new life possible. And that is when we can come together before the cross in reconciliation. So this cross is the precondition of a new life and new community. So let us ask God to reveal these hidden corners of our hearts and for the courage to lay down, lay them down on the cross so that God can raise us into a new life and new community. Amen? Amen to that. So we have a, a special visitor with us today, all the way from Japan, and uh, he'll talk more about himself, so I'll keep the introduction very short. Um, uh, David McIntosh, he's the co-director of the Center for Minority Issues and Ministry. Is it ministry or mission? Sorry. For, mission, that's right, in Japan. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so let's give a warm welcome to uh, David McIntosh. Hello, everyone. Um, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here uh, and to be welcomed into this place of worship uh, on this Sunday. I'm, uh, as uh, introduced, my name is David McIntosh. I am one of two co-directors uh, of uh, an organization that just started in April of this year. Uh, it's called the Center for Minority Issues and Mission. I'll probably just refer to it as uh, the center as I go through my talking. Um, I'm in Canada for about six weeks, uh, sharing with people of the Presbyterian Church and also the United Church in Canada uh, about the work that we're doing. Um, I say our work uh, at the a mission, and or my work at the mission, but it's really all of our work because the center receives uh, a lot of uh, prayer and support, and also financial support from the Presbyterian and United Churches of Canada. Um, some of you might be wondering why Canadian uh, churches are so interested in minority issues in Japan. Uh, some of you might be looking at me and thinking, why is this white guy so interested in uh, uh, minority issues in Japan? Uh, the answer to the first question is fairly straightforward. The Presbyterian Church in Canada has had mission partnership uh, with the Korean Christian Church in Japan for 90 years, since 19, uh, 1927. So this is the 90th anniversary year of that mission partnership relationship. So um, Several generations now of missionaries have been going to Japan, living among Koreans in Japan, and hearing every day stories of difficulties that they are facing, uh, discrimination that they're facing in Japanese society. So through missionaries, um, the, uh, especially the Presbyterian Church in Canada has heard a, a lot of stories about uh, what it means to be a Korean in Japan. Uh, to answer the second question about myself, uh, my father, John, and my mother, Clara Beth, uh, they were from Guelph, Ontario, about an hour from here, I guess. Um, they were brought up there 
uh, went to university. My father studied theology, and as soon as he finished uh, seminary, he took off for Japan. Uh, this was 1961. Uh, I was born, but hadn't had my birthday yet, so I kind of tell people I went to Japan at age zero. Um, and then I ended up uh, going to Japanese schools through uh, elementary school and junior high school. So that's why I speak uh, Japanese fluently as well. Unfortunately, not Korean. But, um, many of the uh, people in the Korean language uh, service knew of my parents or had met my parents because for 40 years, they had been coming to Canada every few years and talking about their mission. So many uh, of your elders uh, would know my parents uh, by their Korean names. They were given sort of honorable uh, or honorary Korean names, Mekindo and Mekinsu. Um, my father was also uh, very engaged in sort of social issues as well. So for about seven years, he was in a court case against the Japanese government. The Japanese government used to have a, a registration law. Uh, I'm old enough that I first had to register under the old registration law too. But every three years, from age 14, you had to go to a local government office and have all 10 of your fingers fingerprinted and recorded. These were put on file, and you had to do this every three years. So you can imagine maybe the sense of humiliation, uh, especially for Koreans uh, in Japan who were third or fourth generation, like my friends. They, they were born and brought up in this society, in many cases only speaking Japanese, and every three years they had to go to a government office and be treated almost like they were criminals or something. So there was a court case where my father and quite a few other people um, took on the Japanese government and over maybe a 10 year period, they were able to at least get rid of the fingerprinting uh, requirement. So this is the kind of work that my father used to do. Um, so I've spent over half of my life in Japan um, and this is why I kind of tell people that I have uh, four parts to my, uh, to my identity. I'm Canadian, I'm Japanese, I'm Korean in Japan, and I'm Christian. So I have sort of four parts of my uh, identity. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard some stories about the struggles of Koreans in Japan before. Uh, there has been discrimination in employment or sometimes discrimination when you went looking for an apartment, they would say, oh, you're Korean? No, you can't, you can't uh, live here. Uh, there's much less of that now, but uh, it used to happen. There's a uh, Reverend Glenn Davis, uh, who was also a missionary in Japan working with Koreans. He recently wrote a, a one, a short one-page introduction letter for me to introduce to various congregations about my work. And in this letter, he was telling this story 
about a young man who was friends with some of the people that were in Glenn's congregation. His name was Che Sung Yun. Uh, che Sung Yun was a very bright uh, student all the way through school. He managed, in spite of all of the barriers that there are for Koreans in Japan, to enter one of Japan's most prestigious universities. He graduated with a degree that should have been really marketable. But every major Japanese company that he went to looking for a job turned him down because he was Korean. He ended up taking a job driving a dump truck for 14 hours a day. And he stuck with that for two years or so. But uh, eventually, he sort of gave up hope that he'd be able to walk the path of his dreams and, and, uh, and became really depressed. And one day, he, he took his own life. Um, I haven't had personal friends take their own lives, uh, perhaps because I'm a little bit younger and, and the situation has gradually improved a little bit. But I know at least two uh, good friends of mine who had discrimination affect their personal relationships. Uh, both of my friends were Korean in Japan men, and they had girlfriends who happened to be Japanese. And they were very close with their girlfriends, and they decided they wanted to get married. So Japanese uh, tradition, and probably Korean too, is you go to the parents to, to ask for their blessing. And when they did this, the parents, both sets of parents of the girls, uh, refused to accept it. They insisted that they break up their, their relationship. One of my two friends uh, and his girlfriend, they, they obeyed, I shall say, I guess, uh, and they broke up their relationship. And this caused a, a very long period of uh, sadness and depression for my friend. Uh, the other uh, pair, my Korean friend's parents also uh, wouldn't, would not give their uh, blessing. So he and his girlfriend, instead of breaking up their own relationship, they decided to elope. They broke up their relationship with their own families uh, and went off and got married. Um, fortunately for both of my friends, uh, things turned for the better. My first friend, he eventually found a, a wonderful person who he fell in love with and got married and, and now has a happy family life. Uh, the second friend, uh, in their case, they eloped, got married, and they had a child. Uh, and this child happened to be the very first grandchild for both sets of grandparents. So the grandparents, I guess, just couldn't stand the thought of not being able to see their first grandchild. So. So this helped to bring the family back together, and they were able to, and, and now they're uh, all okay. But So in, uh, whether it's in jobs or in uh, employment situations, in schoolyards, sometimes you might hear children uh, yell at another child and say, go home to Korea if, they, if, things, if they start fighting. Uh, you don't hear about that so much anymore. 
Uh, the situation has improved a lot in the last 20 to 30 years, even since I can remember. Um, so, if the situation is so much better in Japan today, why do we need something called uh, the Minority uh, Center for Minority Issues and Mission? Well, uh, despite many improvements in the uh, legal and administrative uh, and educational areas of Japan, uh, not all is well in Japan. Uh, could I get this first slide up? Oh, okay. So, uh, since about 2012, there has been a, a rise in, in hate speech incidents all around Japan. It's very kind of shocking. Uh, I think uh, being Korean, you would uh, recognize the, the Japanese sort of rising sun it's a symbol of the old Japanese empire, uh, and it's sort of a, <clears throat> it's, it's almost like equal to the uh, swastika in Germany. Uh, in some cases, actually, in hate speech events, you have some Japanese people pulling out and waving around the swastika, too. So it's, it's a pretty shocking um, scene. And I think maybe a lot of you felt the same kind of shock uh, earlier this summer when, when uh, all that violence was breaking out in Charlottesville. So similar kind of uh, impact. So from about 2012, uh, people in the churches became more and more um, concerned about this. And in 2014, the Korean Christian Church in Japan, that's the partner church of the Presbyterian Church in Canada, uh, decided to call out to international partners to have a, a, an international conference to deal with issues of minority uh, mission. Um, so in 2015, in November, uh, we held a conference and about 130 people came from all over the country, uh, all over the world, uh, and the Presbyterian Church in Canada and the United Church in Canada was there as well. Um, at this conference, we talked about the fact that hate speech and discrimination and xenophobia are issues that are not unique to Japan. Uh, we heard people uh, from uh, South Africa talk about the history there. We, heard, we had participants from Germany talking about some uh, disturbing incidents that, that are happening there. So we recognize that there seems to be sort of a, a disturbing resurgence of xenophobia that is somehow happening around the world and, and therefore as churches, as brothers and sisters, we really needed to work together like we used to do when the international church was trying to overcome apartheid in South Africa. Uh, the Japanese churches that were participating in that conference, they, uh, they committed 
to the idea of starting up a center that would deal with issues like this. And that's how the Center for Minority Issues and Mission, uh, sort of the ball got rolling on that. Um, I'm going to, if I could get the next slide, please. Um, so when we use the word minorities in, in Japan, you might ask what exactly or who exactly does that refer to? Uh, the first group is Koreans in Japan. Until recently, uh, Koreans in Japan has been the largest ethnic minority group in Japan. Um, there are many Koreans who have come to Japan after the Second World War, but mostly I, uh, when I say Koreans in Japan, I'm thinking uh, of uh, third and fourth and fifth generation Koreans uh, descendants of people who came to Japan when Korea was under Japanese imperial occupation. So under Japanese occupation, the Japanese government uh, instituted something called um, agrarian reform or land reform. And it was basically uh, a nice way of, uh, a nice title that they gave to a land grab that took away uh, ancestral lands from many uh, uh, farmers all around Korea. So there were many uh, thousands and thousands of Koreans who were taken off their land and they were forced to go to Japan for financial reasons to look for work. And the work that they did was working in, uh, often in factories that produced weapons or goods that fed the Japanese imperial project. So it was a very sort of sick, uh, sick sort of cycle or uh, economic cycle that, that they were brought into. But ever since they came to Japan, Koreans in Japan have tended to be uh, discriminated against. So that's the Zainichi Koreans. And the next, please. There's also the buraku. Uh, the buraku are similar to the untouchable class or caste. Uh, the dalit is the word that we tend to use now uh, in India. Uh, similar to the Indian caste system, Japan used to have an old Buddhist caste system that said uh, people who work with dead animals or who are uh, doing leather work, their, uh, their jobs are unclean and therefore they need to be segregated. So there was many generations of this kind of discrimination and the buraku are their descendants. Uh, similar to the Dalit system in India, the government sort of uh, says we don't recognize this system anymore, but still there are parts of Japanese society. For example, when somebody is getting married, parents from a good Japanese family might uh, check the background of the spouse of their child to make sure that they don't have any buraku background in them. So there's still some remnants of discrimination there. And the next, please. There, then there's the Ainu people. Ainu people live in the northern part of Japan. Uh, very, uh, the Ainu are actually um, uh, 
uh, the, the, the West Coast native peoples of Canada are descendants of Ainu. The Ainu and the seafaring people kind of traveled along the circumference of the Pacific Rim and came to North America many, many years ago. So I've sometimes interpreted for Ainu people coming to Canada and the Ainu visitors are often expressing surprise because uh, a native Canadian, uh, say a Haida person, looks exactly like their uncle or, or aunt back home in Japan. But anyways, um, so the Ainu had this very large area that, that they were masters of for centuries, but from about the 16th century, uh, more and more Japanese people sort of crept up from the south. The Japanese population increased and they, and they um, sort of settled further and further north and it pushed Ainu uh, communities further and further into the background, uh, much like what happened with native peoples uh, in Canada. So there's the Ainu. And the next, please. And then there's the Okinawans, uh, who are in the south. There's a string of islands between the main part of Japan and Taiwan, um, where there used to be an ancient uh, Ryukyu kingdom. Uh, a very peaceful kingdom uh, that didn't have its own armies. It was just a trading uh, a kingdom. But back in the 1600s, uh, one of the southern clans of Japan uh, invaded and took over the Okinawa Islands. So ever since then, it's been part of Japan. Uh, but at the end of the Second World War, the United States took over Okinawa and started building a bunch of uh, U.S. military bases. So Japan has quite a few U.S. military bases still in Japan, but 80% of those military bases are all concentrated on Okinawa. So even though almost everybody in Okinawa says, we don't want the bases here, We're, we want to be a peaceful people, um, but the uh, American bases remain there. So the Okinawans are treated like uh, second-class citizens within Japan. And then there's uh, more recent groups like, uh, the next slide please. Uh, so there's, I just uh, sort of call them here post-World War II um, immigrants uh, as well, minority peoples. Some of these would be Brazilians and Peruvians who came for economic reasons uh, to work in growing industries in Japan, maybe 20 to 30 years ago. Uh, many of them, the Japanese economy has sort of seen a downturn, so a lot of these people who came from Peru or Brazil uh, who had jobs at the beginning have lost their jobs and because they still struggle with language and different cultures, they're facing difficulties in Japanese society. So that's one group. There's a lot of, um, quite a few Filipino women, Thai women, uh, Taiwanese, Chinese, and even some Korean women who have married 
Japanese men in rural areas uh, who have come, uh, so that this is marriage uh, at the bottom there. Uh, they have come because men in rural areas in Japan are having trouble finding young Japanese women to come uh, and come to the countryside to live there because Japanese young women don't want to go and, and be a farmer's wife. Uh, it's just, um, it's a, a sort of a, uh, um, a social issue for um, rural areas in Japan. Um, and then in addition to these minority sort of ethnic groups, we also are working with uh, women's groups uh, within the church. Uh, there's still women's issues that we're dealing with. Uh, we work together with people with disabilities. And we're also trying to find language and, and a responsible and loving way to try to engage in conversation around the difficult issue of uh, sexual and gender minorities as well. I, I know that's, a, that's a, an ongoing issue here in Canada too. So uh, the Center for Minority Issues and Mission has four, um, four pillars, we call it, four pillars of our activities. These are them, uh, struggling against racism, engaging in youth mission, developing the spirituality of reconciliation and peace, and communications. So I'll just go through each of these one at a time. Uh, the first one is uh, struggling against racism. We want to serve as a place where all these different minority groups that I was talking about uh, where they can come together and look for ways to work together because each of the groups tend to be so busy uh, engaging with their own group's problems that it's kind of hard for them to find extra time to get together um, and discuss. So we want to be a place where they can come to and we can look for new ways of working together. Uh, and it's also part of our job to try to work with uh, the United Church and Presbyterian Church in Canada, for example, but also churches in Germany and Taiwan and Korea uh, who want to, uh, who we'd like to work with and learn from. So uh, working all together ecumenically. Now the next slide, please. The second pillar of uh, our work is youth mission. Uh, we just held uh, a minority youth forum at the beginning of this month, from the 3rd to the 6th. Um, we met, about 25 of us met in Osaka, uh, Japan, to uh, do some field work, some field study, uh, visit a couple of minority communities within Osaka, uh, learn about the history of Okinawans in Osaka, Koreans in Osaka, uh, and then we did some historical study, then we had uh, lots of discussion groups and a workshop to try to 
uh, find ways of expressing what we were feeling after hearing all these stories. Uh, it, was, it was a really fun time. I think the most important thing that it made us do was to think not just in terms of, you know, what is happening out there, but we asked ourselves, what is happening in our own hearts? Where is there, are there corners of our heart where discrimination is there? Uh, these are the kind of uh, self-questioning uh, questions that, that we spent some time on as well. Uh, we'll have another uh, minority youth conference or forum next year. So we're hoping that we can get some young people from Canada to participate in, in that one. Uh, the third pillar is uh, spirituality of reconciliation and peace. Uh, I'll just briefly mention that in, it's sort of a Bible study that we have in mind here, but not just a Bible study of people sitting in a room reading the Bible and talking about it. What we want to do is to go on field trips and hear from people who are doing work with minority groups, uh, hear from them what parts of the Bible really motivate them, what, what is driving their mission. Uh, and so we'll go out on a field trip, hear these stories, uh, and then the following month, the same group of people will get together and will look at scriptures and review the scriptures that the person told them about, but also share with each other what are some other scriptures that, that resonate with that. So we're looking for ways to, um, to hear new voices from the scriptures that will help us as people interested in minority issues to, to engage better. And the fourth pillar is communications. Uh, communications is simply uh, a one-word way of saying newsletters and booklets and website and Facebook and, and all of that. So I brought with me um, two newsletters. These are in English, so uh, if you have a chance, uh, I invite you to please uh, take a look through them. I have... Uh, maybe 20 to 30 copies of each of these. So it'll give you an idea of what's going on with us. Uh, we hope that people, when they read them, uh, they'll feel free to write to us about ideas that they have or perhaps experiences that resonate with what is in here. Um, and maybe every now and then we'll have a, a booklet on a specific topic if we want to dig deeper into some topic or another. Um, so I'd like to end by sharing a little bit about the logo that we have. Um, you can see the words, Center for Minority Issues and Mission, and inside that circle is the crown of thorns, Jesus's crown of thorns. And then inside that circle, you will see a tree stump, so a, a tree that's been cut. And out of that tree stump is one small branch growing with a leaf on it. Uh, this image is taken from the 
scriptures, uh, Isaiah chapter 11. And it represents God's promise of new life. Even as, as minorities, we may often feel discouraged or saddened or depressed about the situation that we face. But God always promises new life uh, out of that. So I'd just like to end by, uh, where, did I, where did I put it? I'd just like to end by reading the section from Isaiah chapter 11 so that you will have a, an, a better idea of where this image comes from. It's Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 9. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the, church, of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall pull, uh, put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy, on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So this is the, the image of uh, God's peaceful kingdom that we are always all praying for and dreaming of. Uh, we, the motto of our uh, center is let us spread the tent of inclusion. We want to be a part of a project where everybody can be working on spreading and stretching the tent of inclusion so that more and more people uh, can feel welcome in society. Um, so thank you for welcoming me and uh, I look forward to uh, uh, perhaps seeing some of the young people at, at uh, the Youth Forum in Japan sometime. Thank you.